Good afternoon, everybody. This is Ben Powers coming at you from the Commander's Voice. My guest today is uh, Major John Nelson Rickard, who is a member of the Canadian Forces, and he's currently on the faculty of the Canadian Army Command and Staff College. So, John, welcome. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to have you on today. As we were talking a little bit before we started the recording, the podcast has been focused sort of on airborne operations with a an emphasis on World War II. And uh, for those of y'all, none of you know, but I was actually, when I was in uh, grad school, uh, Professor Rickard was one of my instructors talking about strategy, tactics, and operational art, and he's the right guy to come on and talk about uh, the Second World War. He's an expert in patent, uh, a, a multitude of other disciplines, but one of the things I really want to talk about today is the Canadian forces in World War II. Now, the Commonwealth forces made up a large part of the Allied combat power, but they don't get a lot of press, especially in the United States, we tend to have a, a feeling that we really swooped in and saved democracy all on our own. And we really need to uh, come to grips with the fact that a world war did require a world effort. And the Canadians uh, punched way above their weight, in my opinion. And I really want to try to get to that today. So uh, with the start of that, Canada is kind of an interesting political development during the 20th century, going from being you know, literally a colony of Britain to gaining dominion status and then uh, ultimately becoming an independent country. And I, I'll admit that what I can know about Canadian history, I can write in a matchbook and crayon. So it, could you kind of explain, John, how like what was called dominion status affected Canada and its obligations to Great Britain and the United Kingdom leading up to the Second World War? Well, dominion status was just one step towards the uh, fulfillment of self-government. Uh, in the First World War, we had no choice uh, when Britain declared war on Germany, that automatically meant that we were going to. Uh, 1931, the Statute of Westminster is put into effect, which gives us uh, greater power over our foreign policy. Uh, and we delay a week uh, in 1939 on declaring war on Germany. Um, but there would have been an uproar in the country had we not declared war on Germany. So that uh, familial connection uh, with the empire was very, very strong still in 1939. Um, but the legal uh, parameters were being put in place for us to be uh, become fully independent. Understood. So when you talk about those ties to the to the empire, I mean, we're only talking roughly 20 years after the end of the First World War, which again, there had been a very large Canadian commitment. So I imagine that level of patriotism, and I don't want to say antagonism towards Germany per se, but, you know, memories are long and you the First World War was in living memory. That must have fed at least the, the rhetoric in on the road to war in 1939. Uh, no question. There was a, uh, a long-standing assumption in Canada that when uh, Britain was at war, Canada was at war. And it went back to uh, the Boer War and even, be even before that. Um, so in 1939, had the country not declared war in Germany, there may have been a mass migration of <laughs> English-speaking Canadians particularly to uh, uh, the mother country at that point. Uh, in, it, to serve in various capacities, maybe join the Royal Navy, the, the RAF, uh, uh, but certainly there was a powerful uh, impetus to, to go and support uh, the, the larger idea of the empire and basically to defend the smaller idea of, of England itself because there were so many connections. 
Understood. Now, the interesting thing about Canada is you've got landmass larger than the United States. You've got two, you know, two oceans, but you've got a relatively small population. Like even today, the population of Canada is roughly the size of the population of, of California. So how did Canada make the make its the strategic decisions, basically, as it raised forces? How are we going to deal with defending the homeland versus coming up with an expeditionary capability to serve in, on foreign service? Was there was that thought through or? How did they approach that? It was it was thought through, but the casualty rate in the First World War uh, was a strong, powerful memory. And our prime minister at the time, Mackenzie King, was loath to send another expeditionary force overseas um, because we had lost sixty thousand killed in the First World War in in fielding a corps. Uh, so Mackenzie King, uh, his main effort really was to support the British Commonwealth Air Training Program, uh, Homeland Defense, as we would call it now, uh, and the naval aspects. He did not want to see a large Canadian army overseas, and that developed over time as the threat changed in Europe. Uh, after the fall of France, everything changed, and the country of 11 million people uh, would, would eventually have to uh, put uh, half a million troops into the field in all branches, um, logistics, uh, engineers, um, put five divisions in the field, two separate brigades, plus support uh, a massive uh, air effort. Um, it was, a, it was a, a, a weighty contribution um, per capita to the war effort, um, but uh, the country was capable of doing it and uh, sustaining it, even though there were some hiccups, as we all had hiccups with uh, manpower issues due to casualties. Um, but we were capable of seeing it through to the end. So when you talk about mobilization on that scale, you say, you know, a country of 11 million people have raised almost a half million in uniform. And of course, there's going to be supporting uh, labor and supporting you know, home front efforts to be able to, to do that. Was there an emphasis on a particular theater? Or was the, the was the focus worldwide as this was a global war? I, my, the little I know about Canadian forces, I know what happened at Dieppe. I know they participated in the, the D-Day landings. But were Canadian forces represented in each theater, or was there really focus on Europe? No, uh, it develops uh, awkwardly. In the First World War, we were in very quickly uh, on the Western Front uh, because we didn't get pushed off the continent. In the Second World War, we sent 1st Division to France, and after the fall of France, we fell back to England and garrisoned England for, for several years. Um, so we had no place to fight, and we were looking for places to fight, and the government was looking for places to commit us for morale and, uh, and uh, spirit. And one of, the, uh, one of the worst decisions probably was the decision to send two battalions to reinforce Hong Kong, which, of course, fell in uh, around December 1941. As you're, as you're being attacked in Pearl Harbor, we lose two battalions in, in Hong Kong that go into captivity for the rest of the war. Um, that was a one-off. Well, we don't uh, venture back into the, uh, to the Far East again until the very end of the war when we, we had considered um, putting a division into the field to support the uh, invasion of Japan. Interesting, but yeah. At that time in 1941, when we were talking two battalions, that was probably before, you know, full mobilization, for lack of a better term. So that must have been a significant amount of combat power at the time to, to lose that many troops. It's about 1,800. 
1,800 troops uh, that we lose, uh, including the brigade staff and, and all those uh, ancillary troops. Um, a heavy blow. Uh, obviously, it created an investigation, <laughs> uh, a royal commission, as we would say, to investigate the causes of the uh, of the debacle out there in the Far East. Um, but yes, it, we are we are mobilizing as fast as we can. Um, we get the first division overseas uh, early in 1940, and eventually uh, grow to a core by the end of the 1940. Uh, but the Canadian Army establishment is fairly well uh, defined, and uh, we're stood up to the uh, to our uh, the Army program of those divisions and separate brigades. Uh, it's all finished by the by the end of uh, 1942, early 1943. So with the, that build up in, you know, is focused in England. So obviously going back across the channel, getting back onto the continent is not only an allied goal, but obviously it's going to be a Canadian goal. Now, if I mentioned to you before the recording, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, 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 uh, the raid on Dieppe and Canadian participation since Canadian forces made up the bulk of the combat power for that operation. So could you kind of set the stage for Dieppe and let folks know what happened? Dieppe is shrouded in controversy from top to bottom and every possible angle. You have to remember in August 1942, the, the German, uh, Germans are at the gates of Stalingrad and we have yet to basically uh, play any significant role in the fighting. The British are fully engaged in North Africa. Uh, you're on the verge of, uh, you're planning, uh, planning for Operation Torch, the invasion of French North Africa. And the Canadian Army has been sitting there for a couple of years. So the pressure to do something is pretty intense. Uh, and this uh, sort of combined with a multitude of different lines of effort, uh, whether it's looking for ultra intelligence and trying to, to capture uh, Enigma machines, uh, or whether it's to uh, bring on an air battle to uh, trip the Luftwaffe, or to test German defenses on the coast. Um, these things all conspire to pull us in, uh, but primarily because we needed to we need it to be seen to be doing something. Tremendous pressure on the Army Commander and, and uh, General McNaughton to get something done, to take part in the raiding program uh, that, that, uh, that Lord Mountbatten had been uh, pushing heavily. So we volunteered for it. Um, and of course, it originally was called Operation Rudder, but was canceled. And Montgomery said, thank God, because it was a bad plan. But it gets rejuvenated a month later as Operation Jubilee, and then we go uh, in August 42 into a really bad tactical situation. Um, and the argument continues about what the actual purpose was. Um, but in terms of lessons, um, whatever we want to say, we decided not to attack ports directly right. after DF. So the Yanks don't attack uh, Cherbourg directly. You take it from the rear. <laughs> And we land on the open beaches on D-Day rather than trying to attack the ports, even though we want the ports. Uh, the, all of Brittany, the whole Brittany Peninsula is full of ports that uh, the planners wanted for logistical reasons. Um, but a tremendous blow cripples uh, 2nd Canadian Division for a long time. Uh, and there's even uh, some legacy aspects of it in Normandy when they come ashore. They're still a bit unsteady um, when you lose two thirds of your strength. Uh, in, in that way, there's some there's some lasting uh, psychology that's uh, hard to dissipate. 
No, understood. And I, I, I want to explore a little bit more because it's kind of fascinating when you lay that out that it, it's even today where historians are still discussing what were the true objectives. So it almost sounds like it was a, you know, a solution in search of a problem. We, we, we've got trained manpower sitting in England. We, we want to be able to show a contribution. And I, and I totally understand the psychological advantages of that. But was there you know, I understand people talk about we were trying to get an Enigma machine to be able to under you know break German codes. Okay, we we need to develop uh, TTPs for you know cross channel invasion. But were, were those almost justifications after the fact? Like, yeah, I'm still trying to d determine in my own mind and my own reading, other than a show of force. Even that that we we've got we we've got an asset. Let's use it. Why DF was chosen and what. If it had been successful, what success would have looked like other than not sustaining 60% casualties? Yeah, what, what would success look like? So we go in and take the town and hold it for a couple of days and leave. The Germans do change their behavior somewhat after the raid. And clearly they realize that uh, they have to do more along the coast, even though we were easily repulsed at the end of the day um, because of the uh, withdrawal of the naval support. Um, McNaughton is on record. Uh, he actually, uh, there is a piece of paper with his signature on it where he says that he understands how tough this is, but the, at the end of the day, the Russians need help. And that Churchill's told him the Russians need some sort of, of, uh, some sort of gesture that we are indeed serious <laughs> about coming in from the West, right? Uh, and juxtaposed against that, of course, is the tremendous fear of the British that they're, they're simply not ready to go. Because the Americans, of course, want to go in 1942-43, yes, called op Operation Sledgehammer. I don't know how much of a sledgehammer it would have been. <laughs> uh, I think it would have been a tough slog with the, uh, you know, this is, this is around the time of Stalingrad. Stalingrad ha actually hasn't happened yet. It hasn't, the German army hasn't culminated in the east. Uh, the Luftwaffe is not broken yet. Um, but Dieppe did bring on a massive air battle, the, the largest air battle of the war over the beaches of Dieppe. Oh, wow. So when you do uh, investigate, uh, that's the tricky part about the, 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 the records because the, the different records reveal different things and people interpret them differently. Some people will say it was all, all uh, designed to bring on that air battle to a trip to Luftwaffe. That's really the only possible thing we could do beyond strategic bombing to help the Russians, right? Yes, sir. And that, go ahead, please finish your thought. No, it's a, it's a microcosm of the tension between the British and the Americans about when's the right time to go. Understood. And I think that's when you bring up the Russians and, and talk about it at the strategic level, that's kind of exciting to me because it shows that interplay between strategic operational leave and tactical decisions. Because you look at it in a microcosm and you can talk about tactical mistakes, attacking a port directly. You can talk about what was the operational objective. We really don't know it. But that's a perfectly valid strategic objective when you have an ally that's getting hammered by a very powerful enemy and you don't appear to be making a contribution. Making that show of force actually is a very valid strategic objective. So that when you expand that aperture, that's a very, you know, the fact that General McNaughton signed that, that statement that the Russians need, need something, that, that makes sense to me. Now, it's hard to justify that to a family that's lost a trooper, but at the same time, when you're, when you're talking about a global war and uh, strategic decisions, that's perfectly valid. It's a wicked problem because uh, North Africa only, only consumes so much German combat power. Not, not much at all at the end of the day.
Yes, sir. So what can you possibly do? And <laughs> when you look at the number of, uh, and, and, and all the staff officers watching will, will appreciate this, again, the amount of staff effort that went into planning uh, crazy operations. Uh, we were trying to get into operations everywhere and uh, McNaughton established this policy that it, it, it had to be a, a, a legitimate operation of war. It had to have some, some degree of feasibility, but we were, we were planning to attack the aerodromes in Norway. We were, we were planning to take the Azores uh, islands <laughs> and, and some of them were, were pretty, pretty high risk. And you have to ask yourself, well, you, you can, you can just imagine that, that the tension in the strategic staffs as they try to figure out how do we, how do we actually help the Russians? Yes, sir. Uh, now, I would like to uh, talk a little bit more, deviate from the questions we kind of laid out, because you, we've mentioned General McNaughton a few times. The, the book is uh, displayed behind you. And most of my listeners, I didn't know who General McNaughton was before I started researching to get ready for this, this conversation. And, and he seems like a really fascinating guy. He's, he's like a, a renaissance man, if you will. He's a you know, war veteran. He's a, a professional soldier. He's a scientist. Could you just give a little bit of background to the, the, the folks watching the, the show about who he was and how he rose to the position he occupied at the time of the Second World War? Andy McNaughton was considered probably the, one of the greatest gunners of the First World War. Uh, he commanded the uh, heavy, heavy uh, artillery for the Canadian Corps, um, takes command of the uh, 1st Canadian Division and rises to command the 1st Canadian Army in the UK during the Second World War. He is a, a brilliant uh, uh, soldier, scientist, engineer. Uh, unfortunately, his, his scientific bent got him in trouble because he was perceived to be doing those things to the detriment of command skills, not training the Canadian Army, the commanders, not mentoring and coaching them to actually uh, apply the, the Montgomery technique or the, or the Anglo-Canadian technique of warfare. Um, and it was frustrating for him because he, he believed that, as, as well as Churchill, that many of the problems were scientific. And many Canadian soldiers at the end of the war would say, well, science would have helped us a lot in many ways in terms of anti-tank guns or, or a better main gun on the tank, on the, on the Sherman tank, or longer range artillery, or better direct support uh, communications. All these things uh, Andy McNaughton was thinking about um, while he was trying to build an army from scratch, <laughs> okay, to, to take on a peer opponent that had, has now had uh, year by year tremendous combat experience despite their losses. That, that corporate memory of, of, of combat was there for the Germans and we, we don't have it. We, uh, we are trying desperately to, to uh, re recreate that legacy of the First World War when uh, the Canadian Corps was considered an elite corps. Um, but McNaughton runs, runs afoul of the British, uh, particularly uh, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, Allenbrook, uh, because he's perceived to be not very adept at commanding uh, in the field. Now think about this, he gets relieved of command of 1st Canadian Army after one field exercise. He gets, he gets one shot to put, take the Canadian Army on exercise in England. And it's called Operation uh, Exercise Spartan in March 1943. And by the end of the year, he's relieved and pushed out. And uh, Harry Currard uh, takes over command of the Army, uh, who has no combat experience in the Second World War either. So there are, there are 
uh, as I say, the title of the book is The Politics of Command. And you as an American know this very well, how much politics are involved in, in command decisions at all, <laughs> at all levels. Um, but it's, a, it's an open debate how Andy would have actually done in command of the army in, the, uh, in Normandy, for example. Um, his, his, his thing that he really tried to achieve was to keep the Canadian army concentrated. But as year by, as year, uh, by year we sit in England, he's under tremendous pressure to get parts of the army into operations. That's why the first Canadian division, the old red patch goes to Sicily under General Simmons. Yes, um, and he thinks that it's coming back because that's what he's told to get combat experience in Italy and come back and spearhead the invasion, but that never happens. So at the end of the day, all those formations that go in all the uh, units that, of the Canadian army that go ashore on D-Day are all raw, um, including the division commander. So, so this leads to a, a myriad of questions, uh, and I've got three that I, I want to drive on right now. The first one being, as a, a scientific mind, do you think Andy kind of suffered from a, a prejudice against thinking officers that might have been prevalent, at least stereotypically, among, you know, UK commanders, that, you know, even the gunners are not necessarily focused on scientific solutions it's it's the idea that you you just have to exercise grip you have to be seen at the head of the formation it, it's you know let's not read too many books or think too hard about this so let's just set a good example and and march to the sound of the guns uh it's interesting because all the senior commanders in the canadian army are gunners or or engineers right there are there are no senior infantry or cavalry uh commanders early in the war they're all and even the british army they're mostly dominated by uh, but a gunner cabal, as they call it. Um, but Andy was even beyond that. He understood all the, the, the technicalities of the, uh, the, the art of gunnery and, uh, and engineering. He was, he was just above the uh, head of the curve in terms of thinking that to tackle the Germans, you really had to be scientifically a step ahead, right? Uh, and we're, we're scientifically a step behind in many ways uh, on, the, on those principal platforms, the tank being the worst. The worst example, um, you know, soldiers aren't going to argue about their equipment for too long because they've got other things to do. <laughs> but at the end of the day, uh, there were complaints about uh, uh, the Sherman and the, and the caliber and, the, and the, the horsepower and all these things that he had brought up early in the war. Uh, the nature of recce vehicles and what they should look like and what, they, what, they, what they, their capabilities should be. Um, when you look back on it, go through his notes, he's right on many things, um, but he can't, he can't fulfill his, fulfill his agenda because of personality clashes with, with others, and uh, it sort of leads to his downfall. Now, was he typical for the time? You know, he commanded during the Great War, he said. He was, you know, commanded the heavy artillery for the uh, Canadian Corps. Right. In the interwar years, was he rapidly promoted? Did he have a lot of command time, even though it wasn't combat command time? Or was he relatively light on experience in leading men versus more staff postings or you know, teaching or scientific uh, research postings? All, all staff postings uh, between the war. He is the chief of the general staff for us uh, for, for several years several years, uh, sort of in the same period, period of time that MacArthur is the uh, chief of staff of the army. Um, and they both complain about the fact that they have no money or, or uh, equipment to train with. 
<laughs> right? Incredibly frustrating time, but in, in Canada, uh, we don't conduct any major massive maneuvers, exercises here in Canada. Uh, there's, there, there are no brigade exercises. No one in Canada knows what a brigade actually looks like on the move uh, in, in Canada between the, uh, between the, uh, in the inner warriors. So we do all our, our hard uh, training and, and sort of relearn lost lessons in England. Uh, we don't do anything like you do with the Louisiana maneuvers. Totally different uh, scale, of course, but we don't uh, really attempt anything like that. Um, so Andy, if you make a list of all the uh, commanders that uh, take over early in the Second World War, he, he's got uh, probably the, the least amount of uh, operational experience. He's got the staff training, of course, and he's got all the, all the courses, but no, no chance to actually test theory. So was, did Canada have a, a doctrine for, for large uh, you know, troop formations and employing them in the field? Or did that have to be developed as the forces were raised? Because uh, you said that he did, had the courses, he had the theory. So the, I'm assuming they at least were doing map exercises and had some ideas of what movement tables should look like, what frontages should look like. They just never had the opportunity to physically apply it. Oh, that's correct. They have all the manuals from the war office. They're, 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 they're not Canadian uh, generated material. It's not our own doctrine. It's all from the field, serv field service regulations, volume three, higher operations. Uh, that's that's the, the Bible for us and the, the training at the Imperial Defense College in Camberley, for example. Um, but we, we literally have to relearn a lot of lost lessons and relearn lost lessons vet what's no longer appropriate from the Canadian Corps, right? Yes, sir. Keep, what, keep what's useful. Uh, do critical analysis about what the Germans were actually doing and then try to come up with a, 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 a way to combat it. And uh, when you study the doctrinal confusion early in the war, you'll, you really see that the, 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 the monkey wrench the Germans threw into the whole doctrinal development process with the, with the early Blitzkrieg successes um, because we drew a lot of wrong lessons. And uh, probably the worst one we drew was the idea that we, we needed to decentralize division artillery and break up divisions into brigade groups. And that didn't work out very well in the desert. Not at all, the, the, the penny pack, packets that they, as they called them. Yes, it seemed, it seemed that Rommel always arrived with the Africa Corps to, to, to overrun one brigade. And one brigade was continually trying to attack the Africa Corps. So <laughs> it's, uh, <clears throat> the confusion was, was uh, uh, rife. It was uh, uh, everywhere doctrinally. Um, and it really took someone like Montgomery to, to come in and say, hey, this is, we can't be doing this anymore. Re-centralize re the guns, right? But these are the kind of things that uh, McNaughton knew uh, and argued against early in the war. So he's he's uh, he's right about many things, as I said before. Now, one follow-on question I have that drives from what we're talking about—you know, doctrinal issues and you know, staff training—as the Canadian Army expanded, I'm assuming that you did not have a large enough core of staff trained officers, guys who've been to Camberley, or, you know, I don't know if they had correspondence back then, but you had a relatively small army, you expand rather quickly. How did staff training keep, keep up with it? Were, did, did they, were, were they able to increase input of officers through special courses or was it just done on the job? Because it, it's, it's not as exciting to talk about as, as battlefield maneuver, but at the same time, if you don't have trained staffs, then you're not going to get formations where they need to be to execute those maneuvers. 
we, we go into the Second World War with about 40 trained staff officers. Oh, my 40. goodness. Oh, wow. From Cambridge trained staff officers. And uh, as you can imagine, the British have to backfill us uh, in, in, in uh, various ways for quite a while until we stand up the uh, Canadian Junior War Staff course, uh, uh, headed by uh, then Colonel Guy Simmons, right? And then he leaves and, uh, and goes on his uh, stellar career to high command a at a core level. Um, but there, the best way to characterize it is a massive catch-up drill. I mean, there's just, there, there is no other way than to beg, borrow, and steal and have uh, trained officers do more than they would normally do in a specific uh, environment if there, were, if there were enough of them. So it does slow the tempo of expansion, obviously, because it's, uh, it becomes a question of just competence at some point. Um, there, there's a lot of, a uh, lot of friction, a lot of mistakes, uh, were made in terms of, uh, training programs, uh, officers not knowing actually how to, how to write a training program, how to conduct training. And that was Montgomery's biggest, uh, observation because he visited every single Canadian battalion in the, uh, in the Corps and, and in the army in 1942. Uh, spoke to every CO, every brigadier, and uh, wrote assessments on every single one of them, and identified who knew what and uh, who need who needed staff help. Right, and uh, you know you can make a recommendation that uh, this 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 individual would be good if he had a good brigade major, but <laughs> you've got to find a good brigade major. Yes, sir. And it's uh, it, it just took time. It just took time. And, uh, but by the end of it, by D-Day, we're, we're well, uh, I think we're well served by the staff uh, that know the basics. They, yeah. they, they, they know enough to be competent enough to, to flatten the, the learning curve. Understood. And that's a great segue because that, that time from, you know, August of 42 up through the time when McNaughton is relieved into the spring of, you know, 44. Now we're getting ready for to go across the channel, you know, Operation Overlord. And then, you know, 6 June 1944 arrives and you know, the, the Canadians hit the beach. So, again, very little attention is paid to them in, in the popular histories in, you know, you know, the longest day, very American centric, you know, uh, yeah. and I, I'm of the opinion, again, not pretending I'm an expert in you know, Canadian operations, but they, the, y'all had a great day that day in my, compared to thing, what was going on on o Omaha Beach or almost anywhere else in, in the invasion beachheads, because right. that was a very successful landing. And, and could you go into that a little bit and explain to folks how, how that evolved? Uh, sure. Well, we're just two beaches down from you at uh, Juno Beach. So the British 50th Division is between us, the 3rd Canadian Division, and your, uh, your, your lads at uh, Omaha. And uh, you're confounded by the terrain at Omaha, and at Juneau, we're confounded by the, uh, by the immediate counterattacks from the Panzers. So 21st Panzer Division is, is literally within striking distance of the beach. Um, and we get ashore, okay, uh, and form our brigade fortresses, as we call them. Um, but we can't get down to our, our deepest objective, which is down around uh, Carpe Airfield, southwest of Caen. 
which was part of the whole plan to sort of encircle and take Caen uh, early on. Uh, that doesn't happen on D-Day <clears throat> because of, of uh, lateral issues with, with flank protection and security and, and the psychology of, of penetrating with your flanks wide open, <laughs> right? So it's, it's easy to write out the order to do that until you're on the ground and realize that there's a panzer battalion on your left flank and you want to go punch, uh, you know, several miles south by yourself, a, a single brigade. Uh, so we don't take uh, Caen on D-Day, uh, but we do hold the vital ground. All the analysis told us that the Germans were going to mass uh, panzers and try to, try to push us back into the beach in that area. That's why 3rd Canadian Division is heavily reinforced with anti-tank guns uh, and, and uh, basically twice the allotment of artillery. There's the, there's the entire division artillery of 3rd uh, of Canadian Division uh, 13, 14, and 15 field regiments, but were augmented by uh, even more powerful uh, 19th field self-propelled guns uh, that will allow us to hold off the Germans as they counterattack in that uh, that vital corridor, that 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 ground. It really takes terrain analysis to understand it, but it's a it's a pretty vulnerable area uh, for both. If they can't hold it, we could sweep down and get into good position. Uh, on the high ground down around uh, Hill 112 and Borgabus Ridge and Barriers Ridge, which will take us uh, almost two months to take at the end of it. Um, but we get ashore, we do, uh, we do our job uh, and dig in, and then it becomes a slow uh, uh, battle of attrition because this idea of, of, of maneuver, maneuver warfare enthusiasts uh, despise the Second World War for some reason, but very quickly, it becomes a wall of core. There are no, you're not conducting independent operations like Stonewall Jackson in the Valley. You're, you're not doing that. Everybody's lined up and the Germans create that wall very, very quickly. And we're tangling with 12th SS Panzer Division on uh, D plus one and they strike us. Um, and then we fight those guys all the way to the end of, of uh, the Normandy campaign, day in, day out. Um, but within, within the 48 hours, the second, the third uh, Canadian infantry division is tangling with 21st Panzer Division, Panzer Lair, and 12th SS Panzer Division. That's amazing. <laughs> it, it's amazing. So when this, if I understand you correctly, even before the, you know, the invasion kicked off, the, 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 the terrain analysis lent itself to the understanding that th there will be a counterattack against Juno, and that led to the heavy reinforcement with, of anti-tank weaponry and artillery. So that, that at least shows staff maturity of being able to conduct that kind of analysis and, and make an organizational decision that makes sense. Now, I've, I've been to Normandy once, I've been very fortunate, but I've got to admit, I was the, an ugly American. I was very focused on Utah and Omaha. I did get over to Sword and Pegasus Bridge. My one question as an old paratrooper is, was the, did, does the terrain around Juno, did it not lend itself to any kind of, you know, pre-invasion, you know, drops such as they had on the eastern and western flanks to allow them to seize crossroads, bridgeheads, anything that could have prevented the counterattacks on the beach, similar to what you saw over at Utah? Was that just not feasible? Uh, the, uh, the planning assumptions, I think, for the airborne drops on the flanks were feasible. Um, I think an airborne drop directly in front of us uh, probably would have ended in disaster. 
because the Germans are so close. 21st Panzer Division is right there. They actually, uh, portions of, the, of that division actually make it to the beaches. Okay, got it. On, on D-Day. Wow. So as good as the paratroopers are, I think it would have been a rough day. No, certain, no, absolutely no doubt. <laughs> this was not about being able to prevent, you know, a large movement towards the beaches. The 21st Panzer, that, the, their positions occupied that entire area. That's, that's a, a level of understanding I didn't have prior to this. So Montgomery you. does consider, though, uh, as operations mature uh, around Caen, he does consider dropping 1st Airborne Division, the Red Devils, in between two corps around Caen, uh, south of Caen, to uh, sort of seal the gap. Um, and your own General Marshall, uh, uh, it's poorly understood uh, by many people, the, the amount of planning that was done for various airborne operations that never came off for various, region, various reasons. Uh, Patton would always say, they don't work because I'm already there. But at the strategic and in the operational level, there were many, many uh, uh, plans on the books, uh, outline plans for dropping air, large airborne formations to help break up the front. So it was, uh, it's, it's, it's a, that's an interesting aspect to it. Um, whether or not uh, it would have been successful is a, is another story. The Germans, uh, the Germans may not have been uh, what they were in 1941 in terms of offensive skill and, and subtlety. By the time they face us, it's it's really that the whole uh, Russian front mentality had taken had seized them, and they were they were brute force, blunt, immediate counterattacks, thinking they could just sweep us back into the into the sea. Shock action. Uh, and it had its it had its impact, no question, at the at the tactical level. But they could never break us at the formation level. It was a you know, even in defense, they're offensive minded. That's for sure. You know, counter yes. is always absolutely. <laughs> so, and this is a great setup to my next question because I'm assuming most of my viewers understand. You know, broadly, we get towards the end of July '44, the breakouts achieved. Allied forces are sweeping across France throughout the summer and kind of the Germans are on the run and everyone's thinking the war is going to be over by Christmas. And then we get, you know, we sweep up north, we get into Belgium and the Netherlands. Operation Market Garden takes place. Another area in which popular history, everyone loves watching a bridge too far. Everybody loves Cornelius Ryan. And that's very U.S. British centric operation. You got 30 Corps, you got First Allied Airborne Army. But the Canadians actually made some very significant contributions in the Netherlands separate from Operation Market Garden through the, the, the fall of 44 and the winter of 45. And I was hoping you could kind of discuss some of those operations a little bit. Sure, we, we call it the long left flank. So after Normandy, we cross the, the Sound River and then it's one slog after another, long Calais until we get to the, uh, the shelves. And that is basically uh, warfare underwater or on water because everything's flooded. We're trying to conduct operations uh, down, down dikes, individual dikes. We have to clear the, uh, the shelled estuary for shipping so we can use Antwerp. Um, we have to clear Walkeren Island. And uh, there are a lot of, uh, if we did an analysis on Walkeren Island and blowing the dams today, the, the lawyers would probably kick you out of the room. You wouldn't even have a chance to brief it <laughs> because we blow the dam, blow the dikes and flood Walkeren to uh, force the Germans out of there. Uh, 
it gets things get na- even more nasty and uh, casualties are still as high as they ever were for us day to day going into the uh, fall and winter. We don't take part obviously in market garden. We're on the left flank. Um, but as we get into the uh, <clears throat> new year and after uh, <clears throat> uh, Bradley and Montgomery have successfully uh, closed off the bulge, Monty wants to immediately take advantage of that, right? And we, First Canadian Army launches Operation Veritable, this massive uh, operation to clear the south uh, bank of the Rhine prior to actually uh, crossing the river. And that is an absolutely brutal ground uh, from, uh, from Nijmegen and Arnhem's to the southeast through uh, the Hawkwall Forest uh, and, and known as the Hawkwall Gap which we have a very uh, bad experience with, but we actually punch our way through there. Um, Veritable is followed by uh, Operation Blockbuster. So it takes two massive set piece operations for us to clear the West Bank of the Rhine in conjunction with uh, your own Ninth Army under Simpson during Operation Grenade. Um, Once we clear that and get into the Netherlands, we realize how bad things are in the Netherlands, especially the Western Netherlands for the civilian population. So at at one point, the Canadian Army is actually conducting offensive operations and doing humanitarian operations at the same time. Everyone thinks that's a a unique characteristic of of, uh, stability operations or modern current operations, but that happened all the time in World War II, all the time. Um, You know, there are long lists of uh, no target uh, no targets, things you can't fire on, you can't sure. do. Uh, no different than today. Um, but we launched something called Operation Faust, where we uh, deliver probably about a thousand tons a day in, in uh, food and relief supplies, medical supplies to the uh, starving population of the Western Netherlands uh, in, this, in the early, early months in the spring of 45. It's really a it, the place is in bad condition. The Germans have intentionally tried to destroy the economy, I think. Uh, they flood everything they possibly can. Um, so it's a real, it's a real uh, nightmare. In the same time, we have to still conduct operations and clear large uh, centers like Groningen, uh, which takes the an entire Canadian division, all nine battalions see action in trying to clear this uh, and they conduct urban operations. Uh, major combat operations inside this urban center as you're trying to protect the population. Now, did the Canadian Armed Forces have anything similar to military governments or civil affairs capability, or were these humanitarian operations being conducted in conjunction with combat ops and planned and resourced by the same staffs? No, we have a civil affairs civil affairs section, uh, not as robust as that at Shafe, for example, which was a massive massive organization, but we have our own structures, uh, own, own uh, capability to do that internally to the army. Got it. Understood. Reinforced, reinforced by 21st Army Group. Certainly, certainly. So you, you raise an interesting point when you're talking about b- back with Walgren and the Shelt Estuary and, you know, blowing dams. And it's obvious with just the terms we're using, island, estuary, obviously a lot of water. Was there were those operations akin to multiple amphibious operations or was it just pure infantry combat in wet terrain? Was it more like island hopping type campaigns in it to clear the Shelt Estuary in the Pacific or was it more similar to what folks were seeing in the Bocage down in Normandy? Like at the tactical level, what was, what was going on? 
uh, so you, you could sort of visualize it, the, the, the terrain as maybe like a, a, a grid or a skeleton with the, uh, with the bones barely protruding above the water. So mostly water. Right? So we do a lot of amphibious uh, movement, uh, no choice, <laughs> uh, because the, 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 the amount of solid ground is very little. Um, and it's, we, we call the 3rd Canadian Division uh, informally the water rats. Very cool. <laughs> because your your mission's your mission, and there it is, and all of a sudden now you're uh, conducting uh, your your amphibosity. <laughs> and uh, it's one of the great examples of just just learning uh, on the fly and just just getting the job done with whatever you have. And uh, because there was there was no choice, those approaches had to be cleared for the shipping. Um, because Antwerp, of course, is the biggest port with the with the greatest tonnage potential, right. and uh, we needed that for the big final push. I understand. It, it takes a lo- takes a long time. And I was going to ask when was Antwerp, Antwerp finally not only secured, but when was it actually, you know, a usable port where you could start you know, landing shipping and moving, you know, supplies it's, inland. It's not it's not fully usable until late in the fall. So we get there, uh, we're conducting operations up there in, in the late September, all through October, right? And then the engineers have to go in there and, and clear wreckage and clear the approaches, sunken ships. And the Germans, uh, the Germans uh, were very good at uh, demolition when they, <laughs> when, when they had the resources. But that's doctrinal, isn't it? <laughs> Understood. So we've got, I think we've done a really good job of kind of covering the evolution of Canadian land forces, you know, from the start of the war up through 1945. I'm interested uh, about uh, what, if any, contributions and growth the, the Canadian Navy saw. Were they a major component in the Battle of the Atlantic? Did they have a major participation in support of the Normandy landings? Did they have major, you know, operations to, you know, clear and open up Antwerp? Were they supporting Third Division? How, what was the Canadian Navy's uh, role in growth? Uh, the, the main effort was uh, from early on the war, right, right until the end, the main effort was the, uh, the uh, North Atlantic. Uh, and again, the Royal Canadian Navy starts from a pretty grim position in terms of uh, ships, uh, doctrine, uh, training. And then they get thrown right into convoy duty in the brutal conditions of the North Atlantic. Um, and the, the fleet grows slowly, but we, between 1940 and 1943, until the, uh, basically the Battle of the Atlantic is won in terms of maintaining the, the supply line, most of our effort is devoted to close escort of those uh, ships, merchant ships, including your own Liberty ships and everything else that you, you're putting on the, on the high seas. From 1943 to the end of the war, uh, the Canadian Navy shifts to finishing off the, uh, the German U-boats, becoming hunter-killers, um, even as the Germans finally um, realize that to have any chance, they have to field uh, an actually a, a, tr- a true submarine that can stay submerged for long periods of time. So this, this submarine sort of uh, uh, Canadian naval vessel race uh, goes on in terms of capability. And uh, we, get our, we, we get our kills and uh, we take, play a major role. We have, by the end of the war, the fourth largest Navy in the world. 
That's in terms of number of ships. Number of ships, but as you know very well, after the war is over, everything atrophies, and that status went away very quickly. Um, but for the war, uh, the fleet grew very quickly, mostly in those frigates and small escort ships. We don't uh, we don't field uh, heavy cruisers like you did, for example. We don't have a, a ship the size of the Indianapolis or anything like that, or or battleships. It's uh, really a convoy-centric fleet. Okay. Convoy centric fleet, yeah. and that, that and all but the ships. So there are some uh, some ships that do play uh, uh, key roles in uh, in the combined uh, fleet that supports the massive fleet that supports D Day, and uh, that is doing uh, uh, protection duty around Shelton and all the other ports. So we're we're there. Um, unfortunately, it's just that it's just one of those things that uh, the sheer scale. No matter how big we were. You, you weren't going to uh, get many, many lines in the history compared to the, you know, United States Navy or the Royal Navy. Oh, certainly. And it, but I still, I, I love that term so much, though, that just, you know, Canada consistently punches above its weight because that is a, a fantastic example of that right there. You got the United States Navy is trying to fight a two ocean war, but it's got so much combat <laughs> power focused in the Pacific and the, the convoys across the Atlantic were critical. And so to be able to provide that, that protection, you know, the whole joke about amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics, well, logistics needs protection. And it sounds like without the, the Canadian Navy, that would have been a far more difficult challenge. And that's something that should probably get more attention than it does. Well, everything sort of offsets, right? So the, uh, the, 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 the contribution of the Royal Canadian Navy to the, to the uh, escorts freed up a lot of British ships to take on the, the larger German surface fleet. Because the British have worldwide responsibilities as well. Certainly, certainly. Right. I mean, they're they're trying to defend the empire across the whole stretch, um, and it's uh, you can only imagine the challenge. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to even imagine doing that again today. And uh, shipbuilding uh, capacity is one of those key things that uh, that is hard to it, it, it doesn't spring up overnight. Right, the industrial capacity to uh, even create multiple frigates and escorts—it's a real challenge. But we we got we got the job done, uh, and thank God the Germans weren't uh, ahead of the curve a bit more in terms of submarine warfare early, early on, because you know they they do tremendous damage, tremendous, and that's why the Battle of the Atlantic is was such a fearsome struggle, yes. so vital too. Yes, sir. So this kind of takes us to the, you know, the end of the war now. And so Canada has gone through, you know, the, the war changed everything. It, it, when we're talking about geopolitics, uh, you know, the, the UN formed the start of the Cold War. What are the, what are the lasting effects on, uh, the, you know, the Canadian Armed Forces uh, coming out of the Second World War? As you've gone, you, know, you go from having the, you know, the fourth largest Navy and then, you know, post you know, demobilization begins post-war and things are rapidly shrinking. But, th you know, things are kind of changing now. Canada is moving towards independence. Canada has had global responsibilities. And so how does that play out over the, the the second half of the 20th century? And are there any lasting effects? Well, demobilization has its immediate effects on the on the institutional memory of the army. Uh, we quickly lose that, uh, that ability and, and capacity to think and fight in terms of large scale combat, in terms of brigades and divisions and corps. Uh, uh, Korea follows very quickly 
um, but we only sent a brigade to Korea, uh, which was a heavy commitment at the time, considering the size of the army post-war. Um, but since Korea, uh, since uh, the 60s probably, well, probably the early 50s, I guess, with the, with the peacekeeping in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, uh, we sort of took a different turn and the government wanted them to invest heavily in peacekeeping operations. You can interpret it different ways. It's, it's far less costly to send peacekeepers than it is to send a corps, <laughs> right? <laughs> to maintain a corps in theater. Um, but there's also that, that uh, sort of, that niche aspect to it. How can they, how can this, the small Canadian forces have a strategic impact? Well, show the flag and, and uh, conduct peacekeeping operations. Certainly. The cameras are always on you, right? Whose flag is that? Well, that's, that's Canada, right? Um, psychologically for the army, um, peacekeeping has its, its benefits, I guess. It's also, it also has its negatives because uh, you can't learn major combat skills overnight. Yes, and we found, we found when we went to Afghanistan, for example, that uh, although it was a, a coin counterinsurgency environment, uh, we, we, the reports quickly came back that, hey, uh, some of these old skills that we lost, these basic field craft skills that are applicable to uh, general purpose combat forces uh, erode so quickly that uh, we have to pay greater attention to it. Um, the sh it's, it's the size of the army. It's not the, uh, the quality of the troops. That's uh, probably the, uh, the lasting issue. Um, you know, right now we have, uh, we could probably with every single person in the Canadian army put a division in the field, but that would include everybody. <laughs> maybe, maybe even the contractors. <laughs> so um, in terms of scale, uh, your point about punching above our weight is is something we sort of uh, sort of take to heart. And uh, our army, like all armies, though, has a hard time saying no. Exactly. <laughs> right? we'll so the it. most the most sober staff estimate, right, could say <laughs> we can't we can't do this. But your head says, well, of course we can do it. <laughs> of course you can do it. Never say uh, no. So, as a as as an armor officer. It, uh, did you find coming up in your career, I find this fascinating that an emphasis on peacekeeping really, you know, tankers are not, you, you usually don't think of those guys as a peacekeeping force that tends to go to, you know, light infantry, military police kind of thing. Did you find right. that had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of challenges where, where armor formations nested from those types of responsibilities so you could focus on, on combat skills or did, did you guys have to balance the tension between getting levies to go, you know, support a UN operation versus being able to go to gunnery? Uh, balance the tension, and uh, there, there, there has always been a, a, a focus on uh, training for, for combat, right? You, you can't have main battle tanks on the range shooting. That's not a peacekeeping thing. <laughs> so that, that is always going on in the Canadian forces. We're, we're always sort of ready for that. We call it general purpose combat capable. Um, but we are, we are a very flexible little army. We, we are capable of dismounting the tankers. And all of a sudden, now they become dismounted peacekeepers. <laughs> and we've done that before in the Balkans. So when you are, when you are as small as we are, uh, flexibility is, uh, is key. And we do pride ourselves on the, on the fact that we can sort of 
go wherever the wind blows. <laughs> what what do you need us to do today? Uh, um, that's a, so we're small, but we're not a one trick pony. Understood. Understood. Well, John, I'm just about at the end of our time, and I want to say thank you very much for, for coming on the show today. So again, this has been Ben Powers with the Commander's Voice. My guest today was Major John Nelson Rickard of the Canadian Forces. He's an instructor at the uh, Canadian Army Command and Staff College. He's the author of the book, The Politics of Command, about General Andy McNaughton. Uh, it's a fascinating book, and I really enjoyed our discussions about uh, World War II. And I got to admit, I learned a ton today. So thank you so much for coming on, sir. Thanks for having me. You have a great day. Thank you.